Tonight in your Bibles, congregation, we would direct your attention to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25 through 32. After we read from that section of the Word of God, we would also turn your attention to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 37. Ephesians 4 in your Bible can be found if you're using the Pew Bible on page 1346. And Lord's Day 37 in the Forms and Prayers book can be found on page 245. Uh, Lord's Day 37 deals with the third commandment, but it does so in a very specific context. The historical setting uh, for the catechism giving more attention to this third commandment uh, was the radical reformers or the Anabaptists uh, who believed that it was unlawful to take any type of an oath. And this was uh, quite the debate uh, back in the days of the Reformation as these Anabaptists stirred up uh, dissension oftentimes within society by their refusal to take an oath. And that's why our catechism uh, gives uh, an additional Lord's Day to the third commandment dealing specifically with oaths. It's not our intention this evening to spend a whole lot of time on the historical context, but I just want to draw that to our attention as we proceed. And we do so by turning our attention to the reading of the Word of God from Ephesians 4, verses 25 through 32. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Thus far this evening, our reading from the Word of God, we then turn to Lord's Day 37, and question 101 asks, but, but may we swear an oath in God's name if we do it reverently? And the answer, yes, when the government demands it or when necessity requires it in order to maintain and promote truth and trustworthiness for God's glory and our neighbor's good. Such oath-taking is grounded in God's Word and was rightly used by the saints in the Old and New Testaments. Question 102 asks, may we also swear by saints or other created things? And the answer, no. A legitimate oath is calling upon God as the one who knows my heart to witness to the truth and to punish me if I swear falsely. No created thing is worthy of such honor. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we live in a day, and it's really not so different than any other day, we live in a day when truth is scarcely to be found. If you think of the past years, maybe the past decade especially, we have been confronted with the evidence of fake news. And maybe we have been bombarded with 
24-7 news loops coming from different angles that we throw up our hands in despair uh, and we say, what is truth? Uh, There is the sad evidence in society and also from time to time within the church, the sad evidence of broken promises. When a person has made a promise, a promise especially of faithfulness, but then has broken that promise. Corrupt speech is far too prevalent in everyday conversation among the world and oftentimes also within the church. In contrast to that, we know by the way of God's self-revelation that God is truth. And we know also that His Word is truth. And it's especially that that I want to focus on this evening. And we will spend time in our third point to the consideration of what an oath is and when it is appropriate to take such an oath. But I want to broaden our consideration out this evening to this whole idea of truth. And I want to do so not exclusively, but especially with the young listeners in mind. Young people, you live in an age that is characterized as being called a postmodern age. You had the modern age, and now we are in the postmodern age. And one of the worldviews that is so prevalent in the postmodern world in which you are coming of age, so to speak, is the emphasis that truth is relative. Often heard in a a slogan such as, what's true for you is true for you, or your truth and my truth. And the, the idea, the false idea, but the idea that is so prevalent also in institutions of higher learning is that there is no objective reality or no objective truth. That it's all up to the individual person to decide for himself or herself. And even those two categories are being blurred for the individual person to determine what is truth. And I would submit to you this evening that nothing is further from reality. And nothing is more damaging to a person than to think that they alone, in some type of individualistic way, can determine what is truth. And so the theme that I put above our discourse for this evening is a proper respect for truth. And the idea is the Christian, out of gratitude, out of thankfulness, we remember the third section of the catechism is dealing with gratitude, the way in which we show appreciation for the deliverance, for the salvation, for the redemption that we have. One of the ways in which the Christian shows thankfulness to God for the deliverance, the salvation that we have, is a proper respect for truth. I want to look tonight at the idea of truth, and then the importance of truth, and then the instrument for truth. So the idea, the importance, and the instrument for truth. The idea of truth. You remember Pontius Pilate's famous question to Jesus that really rings throughout all of human history. What is truth? Isn't it remarkable that Pilate asked that question. 
in the presence of Him who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Do you notice the ironic contrast? There Pilate is in all of his pretended prestige. And there Jesus Christ is, ever stepping deeper into the states of humiliation. And Jesus Christ is truth. And Pilate, a mere matter of feet away from truth itself, says, what is truth? But Pilate's question isn't just Pilate's question. Pilate's question is a question that so many individuals have had and still have. Two things about the idea of truth. Truth is that which accords with reality and that which accords with Scripture. In general, if you go to an older standard dictionary, the definition for truth is that which is in accordance with fact or reality, something that is real something that is actual, and this could be described in relationship to objective facts. Truth is certain propositional statements that agree with reality. Reality about God and reality about the created order that God has brought into existence and continues to maintain. So a certain propositional statement God is eternal. That is a true statement that, that matches the reality of God's being. Or, or you could think of, of others. Humanity is temporal. That also are, is squared up with reality because we are not eternal, even though other false world religions may speak about some type of reincarnation, some type of cyclical journey around and around and around so that the wheel in the sky keeps on turning. Uh, this does not accord with reality. There was a time in which things existed and you and I as individual persons did not exist. So for me to say that I am eternal would not be true. That would be a lie. That would be a, a falsehood. That would be a propositional statement that would not square with the reality of the matter. Also, truth accords with reality in relationship to historic events. In relationship to events, truth is the actual recounting of events within time and history as they actually occurred. Now, sometimes you hear of revisionist individuals who go back and they, they deconstruct what they believe uh, is a misunderstanding uh, of history. But what truth is, is the accurate recounting of historic events. And this, in passing, is why our creeds are so vital. Because what our creeds do is set forth in short, concise statements the verity or the truthfulness of certain historic events that our faith is based upon. So when we go through, for example, the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, we are expressing the truth of what we believe, but we are also expressing truth about events that have occurred when we say that we believe in the Incarnation. 
We believe that there was actually a moment in history in which the Holy Spirit empowered in a mysterious, supernatural, but yet very real way the Virgin Mary so that she conceived. And we believe that there was actually a a moment in which Jesus Christ died and rose again. This is not just some type of fabrication of our minds. These are the historical truths of the Christian faith that we believe with our hearts and profess with our mouths. And so you notice how vital and how essential truth is to the Christian faith. Truth is that which accords with reality and is that which accords with Scripture. One verse or even a part of a verse, young people, that I would encourage you to memorize is John 17, verse 17. Your word is truth. This is Jesus Christ in his high priestly intercessory prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus Christ is praying to his Father. And his prayer is sanctify the disciples, sanctify the church, sanctify them by truth. And then he makes this true statement, your word is truth. And if I could, I would write that in the minds of every young person. Especially throughout your years of learning, your years of education. And if you go off to higher institutions of learning, just repeat over and over and over and over in your mind, the Word of God is truth. The Word of God is truth. The Word of God is truth. And anything that you hear, anything that is presented to you that does not square with the Word of God, you know automatically the Word is true. What that person says, if it doesn't square with Scripture, is a lie. Because the Bible, it serves, you might say, as a filter uh, to, to identify and to screen out the lies that are so common within the realm of humanity. Your word is truth, especially as it speaks in relationship to divinity, as it reveals God's being, His nature, His works. Here is where we learn who our God is. And here is where we learn what our God has done. As the prophet of old said, to the law and to the testimony. You want to know who God is? You want to know what He's done? Don't just sit around in a circle and pass ideas around of your own imagination, but open up the Word. Your Word is truth, not only in relationship to divinity, but also in relationship to morality, moral value, good and evil, is not determined by common consensus. Moral value is not determined even by the government of the nations. Moral value, good and evil, is determined by God. And He reveals to us that which is good, and He identifies that which is evil through His Word. And although many, many people will come and say, well, we're living in a new age, 
We're living in unprecedented times, and social evolution has come along, and we've gone through, you know, the, the, the first and the second, and maybe now even the third wave of feminism, and we've gone through uh, the sexual revolution, and many individuals say we're leaving behind all of that old traditionalism, all of that objective rigidism that would characterize the age of modernity. We're now in a new age. Don't fall prey to that lie. That which is morally good is always morally good. And that which is morally evil is always morally evil. Because God does not change. His morality does not change. His moral standards do not change. So this is something of the idea of truth. That which accords with reality and that which accords with Scripture. Well, why is this so important Why is truth so important? That's our second point. We'll notice that truth is important for God's glory and for our neighbor's good. First of all, for God's glory, God is glorified by truth and God is also glorified by justice. God is made big. And boys and girls, that's that's kind of what it means to say glorify God. So when we come to to worship, we come to glorify God. We make Him big. Not that we can make Him any bigger. He's spirit and He's omnipresent. He's present everywhere. But we make His name big by singing to Him. We make His name big by worshiping Him, by acknowledging that He is God. But we also do this only as we acknowledge the truth. If, if If we try to tell a lie about who God is, or if we believe a lie about who God is, it robs God of something of the praise and the honor that He is worth. Uh, There is a a teaching known as open theism. Theism is a word for God, and open just means that, that, that God doesn't really know the future. I said this is a false teaching. It's not really that new. It's just come repackaged. And the idea is that that God is eagerly waiting to see what happens based upon how you and I decide to do certain things so that God really doesn't know what's going to happen on Friday afternoon. Now, does that make God big? No, that makes Him very, very little. It makes Him very, very small. It, it, It brings Him down to our level. It's almost as if God has to turn on the news channel to find out what's happening in the world. You see, the lie, when it's believed, robs God of something of His glory. But the truth of the sovereignty of God, that makes God big. And so that's why we ought to be concerned with truth, especially within our theology and our understanding and our comprehension and our study and our reception of God's self-revelation so that we might properly know Him as He truly is that we might avoid idolatry, that we might glorify Him and worship Him as He is worthy of being worshipped. God is also glorified by justice. By a justice that upholds the moral standards of God Himself. God is not glorified when we buy into the lies of our society 
and when we as the church begin to call good something that is evil. God is glorified when the church echoes His justice. When we say, for example, that the expressions of sexual intimacy are good in the context of biblical marriage between one man and one woman, God's moral law, God's moral value, God's moral standard, God's creational design is then upheld and God is glorified. But when when the church begins to distort that and when we say something different than that, then God is not glorified, then God is not honored. When we say that humanity has the freedom to express sexuality in any type of a way that humanity dreams up, and when we try to put the stamp of good upon that which is perverse and evil, God is not glorified or honored. See, at the very root of it, these are not just simply cultural issues. They are cultural issues, but they are issues that deal with the honor of our God. And in passing, that's why we have to speak about these things. We don't have an option. I am bound as a Christian to glorify my God. And I glorify Him by speaking truth as He has revealed that truth to us in and through His Word. But not only the speaking of that justice, but also the walking in righteousness. And let us as a church be very, very careful when we speak out against sin, lest we fall prey to the sin about which we speak out against. The world has heard enough hypocrisy from the church. Let there be a measure of consistency in acknowledging our own sin, but also in walking in newness of life. Truth is important also for our neighbor's good. Who is your neighbor? You can just simply think of the person sitting in front of you, behind you, next to you in the pew here. You can think of the person on the acreage or the plot next to you. You can think of the person three spots down on the assembly line tomorrow morning, the person you'll interact with at Tyson's hardware store, the person two cubicles down in the office. The neighbor is the individual that you interact with. Truth is important for his or her good. Truth spoken in love and in an informal conversation and in an illegal setting upholds the good of my neighbor's name as much as is possible. Ephesians 4 verse 25, so straightforward, therefore putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. Protecting my neighbor's reputation by only speaking that which accords with reality, but also the good of his possessions We are by the truthfulness of our speech to uphold the good 
of our neighbor's possessions. Lies, misrepresentation of facts, especially also in our business transactions. Do not honor our God, nor do they protect our neighbor's good. So as we go about our life, let us make sure that we seek to bring expressions of thanksgiving to God with integrity in all of our transactions. And integrity is characterized by truthfulness, by honest disclosure of reality. And in order to preserve to some measure truth within a fallen world, there is what we want to consider in our third point, the instrument for truth. Because we do live in a fallen world. We do live in a world that is characterized by being underneath the the bondage of the evil one. Now, this is, of course, our Father's world, but in His sovereignty, He still allows Satan to go about uh, Satan's tactics. And Satan is the father of lies, and he does much harm spreading his lies and encouraging lies. And God recognizes this, and he has put an instrument or a tool or a mechanism in place to help preserve truth in a fallen world. You might say this is part of what restrains the expression of the evilness of humanity. And the description of this instrument is the oath. And we just simply borrow the primary author of the Catechism, Zacharias, your sinus's definition. An oath, properly speaking, is a calling upon God. Notice that that's the first. And if you're taking notes, you could just itemize these. The first thing to know about an oath is you call upon God. You do not call upon anything else. You don't swear by the planets. You don't swear by your mother's grave. You call upon God. And why do you call upon God? Well, your sinus continues, as the one who knows the heart. You call upon God as the one who knows the secrets of the heart and the one who can perfectly evaluate truth. So an oath is a calling upon God, asking God, inviting God, to evaluate the heart, and, and to bear witness, your sinus continues, to bear witness to the truth. So you're, you're asking God, God, examine my heart, and then examine my words, and evaluate if they are in an agreement, or examine what really happened, and examine my recounting of what happened and evaluate the correlation between the two. But there's more to the quote, and punish me if I swear falsely. Do you notice the solemnity of the oath? God, you know all things. You know what happened, and you know what I have just said happened. If I have purposefully and knowingly misrepresented, punish me. Well, why can we take oaths? Because we find oaths being taken in Scripture, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. One example from each, Deuteronomy 10, verse 20. 
You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve Him, and to Him you shall hold fast and take oaths in His name. So there clearly in the Old Testament was the command that at certain times and in the proper way, the Israelites could and should take an oath. Certain times when the importance of truth required it. For example, in a court of law, if somebody was convicted of a crime, uh, the witnesses had to take certain oaths. Uh, but you might say, well, that's the Old Testament. Well, we have an example from the New Testament as well. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 23, the Apostle Paul says, Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you I came no more to Corinth. There were false accusations about why Paul hadn't returned to Corinth. And he now, to settle the matter, says, I call upon God. Uh, he is the one who can witness that I didn't come to Corinth to spare you. And so you have the New Testament example as well as the Old Testament example of the legitimacy of the oath in a certain specific context. So now reflect upon oaths. Many of us have taken oaths or vows. Now, boys and girls, you haven't probably taken an oath yet. But the day will come when you most likely will take an oath. This list is not absolutely exhaustive, but oaths are taken within the covenant community of the church, usually in this order, upon our making public profession of faith. We make promises in the presence of God that we believe certain things and that we will do certain things. We take oaths in marriage. We promise certain things. We vow certain things in the presence of God. You can think also of the presenting of children for baptism. There again, in the presence of God, we promise to do certain things. To raise our children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. For those who have been called to office within the church, whether it be deacon, whether it be elder, whether it be minister of the word, upon ordination and installation, solemn vows are taken. Again, in the presence of God. And it may be for some of us that the civil magistrate has also called upon us to take a legitimate oath in a courtroom setting. In a different context, but nevertheless in the presence of God, an oath is taken to speak that which is true. Now think about the promises that you have made. Have you kept them? Are you a man of your word? A woman of your word? Lies abound in society. But also sometimes lies can be found in the church. And there's a dual application because in the words of 1 John, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, 
and the truth is not in us. If we think of all of the vows that we've legitimately taken, and if we think we've kept them all perfectly, we have misevaluated. And so we confess our sins, but we do so with the hope of forgiveness based upon the one person who perfectly kept his promise to do the will of his Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. But knowing the forgiveness that there is in Jesus Christ, by the grace that is given to us through the gospel, let us earnestly resolve within our own hearts to keep our oaths. And they're not always easy to keep. If we're honest, it's not always easy to be faithful in the exercise of office, to be faithful in the context of raising our children, to be faithful in the context of marriage, to be faithful to our professions of faith. And so as we reflect upon the solemnity of oath-taking, it ought to drive us to the exercise of prayer. Lord, give me grace to fulfill that which I have promised. Give me wisdom. Give me strength. And it also ought to drive us to the prayer, deliver me. Deliver me from the father of lies. May I walk in truth. May I speak truth, and may I do truth to the honor and to the glory of him who is truth. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we ask simply that you would give us, and especially the young people who hear these words, a biblical understanding of what truth is. And, and not only an understanding, but, but give us also a conviction, a love for the truth of your word. And having a love for him who is truth and also your word that is truth, may we then faithfully keep our vows, keep the oaths that we have taken. And where there is evidence of us having fallen short, Father, forgive, but also enable that we might walk in a spirit of faithfulness to express the gratitude to you for the salvation that you have accomplished. For Jesus' sake we pray, amen.